Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And this is a partnership with the Leukemia Research Foundation and Cancer Care. And the topic of today's program is Acute Myelogenous Leukemia, or AML, Current Treatment Perspectives. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them for their support of this program. And we have lots of you on the call today, over 200 participants, and you come from all the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Croatia, Cyprus, Egypt, Germany, Nepal, Pakistan, and United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well, and it's credit that you've all chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Farhad Ravandi. Dr. Ravandi is Janice and Stephen A. Lasher, Professor of Medicine, Chief Section of Developmental Therapeutics, Department of Leukemia, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Ravandi will be addressing an overview of acute myelogenous leukemia, or AML, in the context of COVID, Omicron and seasonal flu, current treatment options, transplantation as a treatment option for AML, new and emerging therapies, and important questions to ask when communicating with the healthcare team. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ravandi. Thank you very much, and um, uh, thank you for having me here. And as you mentioned, I'm going to talk about uh, current treatment options and discuss uh, them in the context of uh, COVID and uh, other viruses. Um, so, uh, as unfortunately probably everyone knows on the call, AML is a, a disease of a cancer of the bone marrow cells, and um, it's um, uh, unfortunately can occur at um, any age, uh, right from a very young age until a very advanced age, and. Um, Historically, uh, we have relied on uh, what we call cytotoxic chemotherapy, and that's essentially uh, agents that um, uh, essentially attack the DNA of leukemic cells and uh, try to um, uh, essentially get rid of them as compared to uh, normal uh, non-leukemic cells. And uh, because this is chemotherapy, it is associated with uh, uh, some side, effect, side effects and significant uh, toxicity, and uh, um, it is actually a more intensive chemotherapy than uh, many of the chemotherapy given for other cancers, mainly because uh, uh, the aim or the goal of therapy is to essentially uh, deplete the bone marrow from the leukemia cells. And as you all know, bone marrow is um, throughout the body and the leukemic cells are in the blood and throughout the body. And so the chemotherapy that is used for acute leukemia has been uh, quite uh, 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 toxic in some degrees, uh, particularly for the older patients. Um, 
so uh, uh, the reasons why these cells become leukemic is because of changes in the uh, genes and uh, chromosomes of the uh, bone marrow cells, some of the bone marrow cells, and uh, this leads to abnormalities that leads to essentially the abnormal uh, leukemic cells. Uh, fortunately, over the last uh, 30 years, uh, we have got uh, much better at understanding the biological basis of this, and uh, this has led to uh, development of better uh, agents or better uh, drugs, uh, and especially more recently what we call targeted drugs. So uh, we have identified some of these uh, uh, genetic uh, changes and have developed specific uh, agents or uh, molecules to uh, overcome these abnormalities in the leukemic cells. And uh, this is why, as you will hear from Dr. Stein, uh, participation in clinical trials is very important because um, I would tell you that the standard therapy of AML, um, which is uh, with chemotherapy, has changed very modestly uh, over the last uh, almost 50 years. Uh, but the fortunate thing is that with the availability of these new agents, we have become a lot better in treating AML, and so it is actually very important to uh, try to get these agents to the patients. And unfortunately, some of them are only available on clinical trials um, due to regulatory issues, et cetera. Um, the, these targeted strategies, um, uh, some of them uh, you may have heard of, a drug called venetoclax that has been very useful, particularly in older unfit patients with AML. Um, it's given in combination with other agents, uh, gentle chemotherapy, uh, um, and uh, the two together have been much more uh, successful in treating older patients uh, who are unfit for chemotherapy than what we used to have before. Uh, there are also other uh, targeted agents, and uh, by the way, many of these targeted agents are just uh, oral drugs. Uh, they're pills and uh, taken by mouth, and obviously that makes them a lot easier uh, to uh, administer and to take by the patients. And uh, there are some other of these uh, oral agents that have been developed, and again, they are uh, quite uh, uh, effective uh, and uh, some of them are already FDA-approved and available, um, uh, so uh, they can be even obtained outside clinical trials, but uh, some of these are given combinations which make them even more effective, and that's only, uh, at the moment, typically available on clinical trials. Um, in terms of uh, the COVID and viruses situations, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, AML is a disease that, um, uh, in general, uh, you cannot wait too long uh, to start the treatment. And as I mentioned, uh, a significant part of the treatment is going to be uh, associated with lowering of the blood counts and uh, uh, suppressing the immune system. So uh, leukemic patients are, unfortunately, particularly at risk of infections in general uh, as a result of the leukemia itself because leukemia causes uh, lowering of the blood counts itself, but also as a, a result of the uh, therapy. And one of the advantages of these uh, newer strategies is that they are not as uh, 
uh, aggressively toxic, and because of that, uh, the risks are probably a little bit less, and that's why they are now commonly preferred in the older unfit patients. Um, but uh, in terms of the viruses, um, uh, of course, uh, precautions are always necessary. Uh, patients uh, have been recommended to have been uh, vaccinated uh, uh, for COVID and as well as other uh, viruses such as influenza. And um, uh, the monitoring and uh, management of patients is very uh, close and very um, uh, careful in, in, uh, a, a, in a protected way, uh, typically in uh, the hospitals, uh, particularly during COVID period, uh, everyone wore masks, etc. And in fact, uh, some of the uh, uh, hospitals uh, uh, developed specific COVID units to avoid spreading uh, the virus in between uh, patients and the staff. Um, transplantation has been an important uh, uh, part of therapy of AML. Um, allogeneic stem cell transplantation is uh, uh, essentially obtaining what we call donor cells uh, from a donor. Uh, these are uh, bone marrow cells uh, that uh, when given by an infusion, just like a blood, you know, blood transfusion, uh, to the patient after the patient has received a preparative regimen, they will essentially repopulate the bone marrow with healthy cells. And um, so this has been a, a goal of therapy for many patients with AML uh, throughout the last several decades uh, because um, in certain uh, subtypes of leukemia, it is considered as the only uh, curative strategy. Of course, uh, transplant uh, has its own potential toxicities, and because of that, um, uh, it is typically uh, limited to uh, healthier patients, and uh, uh, many transplant centers don't offer it beyond a certain age, typically 70 or 75 years of age, uh, and um, it is typically more uh, successful in younger patients who are healthier, and uh, uh, so uh, it is a strategy that um, everybody aims for for many types, subtypes of AM, AML, but uh, it is not something that is available for every patient, particularly the very elderly population. Um, in terms of um, uh, new developments, I did mention uh, the focus on developing what we call targeted therapies, uh, which are uh, based on the uh, molecular uh, or genetic abnormalities that cause leukemia. And I think this is also the case for other cancers. Uh, 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 there is a lot of emphasis in uh, developing uh, more specific therapies based on the uh, biological basis of uh, cancer and leukemia. Another area that is of a lot of interest is immune therapy, and this is uh, much more advanced in uh, other cancers, but uh, there's also efforts in leukemia to try to uh, uh, essentially use the patient's own immune system uh, to uh, try to attack the leukemia cells. Uh, in fact, allogeneic stem cell transplant that I mentioned is 
largely uh, thought to be uh, effective because it is uh, an advanced form of immunotherapy. I think uh, with that, uh, I'm going to um, end, and I'm sure Dr. Stein is going to talk about a lot of the uh, advantages of participation in trials. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Avandi. That was an ex really an exceptionally excellent presentation, a lot of great information, and you really set the stage for today's program, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. M. Eitan Stein. Dr. Stein is a hemat hematologic oncologist, clinical trialist, acute myeloid leukemia, leukemia service from Department of Medicine, Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Stein will be addressing updates on clinical trials, how clinical trials increase treatment options, side effect, a symptom and pain management tips, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes, and quality of life concerns and follow-up care. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Stein. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so I wanted to address briefly um, a few items about clinical trials. I think one thing that's important to note about all of the therapies we have for cancer generally and for acute myeloid leukemia specifically is that all drugs that are currently approved start out as drugs that are tested in a laboratory and subsequently move into clinical trials where they are given to patients. Um, and the importance of clinical trials is twofold. One is that without the participation in clinical trials of patients who are in need of those trials, we would never make any advances in this field. So really thinking about acute myeloid leukemia, the way we are able to make clinical advances is by all of the patients who have the disease opting to participate in clinical trials that help us move the needle a little bit uh, forward. In addition, clinical trials are important because they often offer access to therapies that wouldn't be available if your doctor uh, was writing a prescription. So, um, for example, we've been very involved, as has MD Anderson Cancer Center, in a clinical trial of a new compound called a menin inhibitor. This particular drug seems to work very effectively in patients with a certain subset of acute myeloid leukemia, that is acute myeloid leukemia with a rearrangement involving a certain gene called the MLL gene. And if people didn't participate in this clinical trial, we never would have known that this drug works or this class of drugs works so well. And we're hoping that in the next one to two years, we'll see approval of this class of drugs to improve the outcomes of patients um, with acute myeloid leukemia with this defined genetic abnormality. Another thing that often comes up um, in, with patients that come to see me in my clinic is that when I mention clinical trials, I think people often assume that there will be a placebo arm. That is that there will be um, patients that might not get the active drug. And, and I really want to dispel that notion in acute myeloid leukemia, and I'm going to dispel it in two ways. The first way is that the vast majority of clinical trials are such that they don't have a placebo arm. That is, there is one intervention, one drug that is being tested and are being used for all of the patients who participate in that clinical trial, and there is no placebo at all. The second thing is that in phase three clinical trials, there is often a placebo component of that trial, 
but the placebo component doesn't replace the active therapy. So what I mean by that is most phase three trials, or really all phase three trials in acute myeloid leukemia, what they will do is they will test the standard of care treatment, that is the treatment that people are already getting for their AML, and they will test that intervention against an intervention that is the standard of care with the addition of something else. So essentially, um, for patients who participate in phase three trials for acute myeloid leukemia, really the, in terms of the trial, the worst that can happen is that you're getting the standard of care that you would end up getting anyway. Um, and then the best thing that could happen would be that you're getting something in addition to the standard of care. So I am a huge advocate of participation in clinical trials um, for the reasons I just stated, and just to reiterate those, that if we didn't have participation in clinical trials, all of the great benefits and advances that we've made over the past 40 years for AML really wouldn't have happened. You know, one of the things that happens to patients with acute myeloid leukemia is they can have side effects, side effects due to the disease itself and side effects due to the therapies for, those, for the disease. So let's talk a little bit about the side effects that people have from the disease itself. And you all know that in acute myeloid leukemia, the primary thing that happens to someone's body is that their bone marrow is no longer working correctly. And as a result of their bone marrow no longer working correctly, patients will become anemic, patients will have low platelet counts, and patients will have low white blood counts. And it is those three items that contribute to the symptoms that occur as a result of the disease. When patients are anemic, they can become fatigued. You can get short of breath when you're walking up steps or you're exerting yourself. Um, you might not have energy to do a lot of things. When you have low platelet counts, people can notice um, sort of a strange rash on their body. People can bleed easier. Um, people sometimes can get severe bleeding or serious bleeding. And when you have low um, infection-fighting cells, low white blood cells or low neutrophils, people are more prone to getting infections. I have two recommendations for, or maybe three recommendations for how to uh, counter these symptoms. And the best way to counter the symptoms is to be sure you are being treated by your physician in a place where they are closely monitoring your blood work so that if you are anemic or if you have low platelets, that you can rapidly get a transfusion of platelets or a transfusion of packed red blood cells. In my practice at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, I monitor patients' uh, blood work when they're in the throes of having their acute myeloid leukemia and getting treatment or for their acute myeloid leukemia. Um, I monitor their blood work two to three times a week. Um, it, is, it is tailored to the particular patient and what their particular needs are, and I sort of prophylactically transfuse them if their hemoglobin drops to around 7 or if their platelet count drops below 20 or below 10. And in that way, we try to prevent patients from having the symptoms associated with those low blood counts. In the terms of the low white blood count, unfortunately, you can't transfuse people with white blood cells. It doesn't work. Um, but what you can do is you can give people prophylactic antibiotics that help them uh, stay clear of the most common infections in patients with AML. So I would encourage everyone to avoid the side effect of getting fevers and getting infections of taking prophylactic antibiotics if your doctor thinks that you might need those things. Now, of course, the treatments themselves can cause side effects. Um, the side effects from the treatment themselves and a goal of getting to a patient to a complete remission can be things like um, nausea, uh, things like fatigue, 
Um, and uh, mouth sores can also be an issue with some of the therapies that we give. Um, again, the, the important thing to do is to tell your doctor about all the side effects. If you're having nausea and it's not being adequately controlled with the anti-nausea agents that are being administered, there are a whole bunch of anti-nausea agents um, that are new and that work exceptionally well, and your doctor can consider giving you those anti-nausea agents as well. So um, that would be something that would also be really extremely important. Let's move on for a second to talk about how you prepare for a doctor's appointment. And especially in the age of telemedicine and telehealth, which we are still doing, um, when there's no physical exam that's performed, and in some ways you actually have more time probably to ask questions. And, and really the important thing is um, to do the following. Number one, be sure the technology works. Most institutions now will have sort of a tech check that you can do before your doctor's appointment to be sure that when it's time to get on with the doctor um, that the technology is working correctly. I know, again, from personal experience that it's frustrating, very frustrating for the patient um, when uh, the technology is not working correctly. You feel like you don't have um, enough time or you're going to lose your time with the doctor. So if there is a tech check that gets done, before the telehealth appointment and you've got any concerns that your technology might not work correctly, um, it would be important to avail yourself of that opportunity. You should also be sure to come, and this is for an in-person or a, um, a, uh, a telemedicine visit, to come with a list of questions that, that you want to ask and that are important to you. you know, those questions are going to be things like, um, you know, what do you think the best treatment is for me? What are the treatment options? What are the side effects of the different treatments that you're proposing? Why are you recommending one treatment over another treatment? How am I going to feel during my treatment? Um, an important question is, if I don't feel well, who is the point of contact? How do I get in touch with your office? And who am I going to be speaking with? Will I be speaking with the doctor? Will I be speaking with a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant? Will I be speaking with, um, with you? So those are all um, really important questions to ask. One question that, that I like a lot when patients ask is, um, at the end of, of a visit, a lot of patients will ask me, um, and I like this question a lot, is there anything that I have not asked that other people ask that you think are important for me to know? Um, because that really prompts the doctor to sort of think about the other things that they may um, not have told you or they may have um, um, forgotten to discuss with you. It's also perfectly appropriate to, to bring up um, things that you might have read about acute myeloid leukemia, treatments you might have heard about for acute myeloid leukemia, and see if they might be, um, if they might be options for you. It's also, and I would encourage you, that if, you know, if, if the appointment you're having with the doctor is a second opinion or if you'll be going to get a second or third opinion somewhere else, to discuss that and tell that to the doctor. Um, you know, it's a relatively small group of people in this country um, that treat acute myeloid leukemia. Um, most of us know each other pretty well, and we all uh, respect each other, I think. Um, and I certainly don't have any problems when someone wants to get a second opinion. In fact, I welcome it because, you know, people will have ideas that I might not have had um, or new ways of thinking about things. And, and it's important to um, – the most important thing is your health and getting better and, and – um, getting other opinions can be helpful. The caveat to that is sometimes people can get too many opinions. So what I mean by that is once you're on to your third, fourth, fifth opinion, the, the, the benefit of spending time in yet another doctor's office is probably pretty low. 
Um, so when I have relatives who have you know, serious illnesses, I always tell them to get a second opinion. And if there's really some complicated thing going on, I say maybe think about getting a third opinion. Um, beyond that, though, I think it, it ends up being um, um, not necessarily a great, a great use of time. Um, finally, I want to talk about what happens when patients um, are done with the treatment for their acute myeloid leukemia. You know, acute myeloid leukemia is a disease that um, causes a lot of symptoms and is disruptive to people's lives. Um, acute myeloid leukemia, um, the treatment itself is disruptive to people's lives. Certainly having an allogeneic stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant is very disruptive to people's lives. It doesn't, doesn't only disrupt the life of the patient. It disrupts the life, the life of their, or the lives of their family members, including if they have a partner or children or parents or grandchildren. Um, uh, it, it's really very, very disruptive. And um, that disruption doesn't always end once the treatment is over and once someone is in remission, because the patient themselves, as is natural, are gonna, is going to worry about, you know, when's my next doctor's appointment? Is there a possibility that I'm going to relapse? Um, and sort of those more um, broad discussions about sort of worries and fears and anxieties of the patient and their family, so what I would broadly term the psychosocial issues, can, can also be really disruptive to life. I really strongly encourage patients um, to talk to other people who have gone through what they've been through and to look out, seek out support groups, especially um, for the, you know, looking at patients who may be a few years farther down the road than you might be in your treatment uh, regimen or in your disease journey. And also, I strongly encourage people to, uh, to really meet with professionals that, that help people cope with anxiety um, and depression that might come with that. Um, if, if it was up to me, I would, I, would, um, I would strongly recommend or maybe even mandate that, that all patients at their first visit um, get hooked up with a psychologist or a social worker because I think at the end of the day, it really, really benefits people greatly. Um, and with that, I'm going to sort of end my remarks and um, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Stein. That was really ex extraordinary, a wonderful presentation, very comprehensive, um, and also very um, really giving people incredibly important suggestions and tips to follow up on that are that are really important for their care. And I, I know there'll be more questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you so much. Um, thanks. I really appreciate your presentation today. And our next speaker is Ms. Carrie Callis, and she is a with the Leukemia Research Foundation. So she is collaborating with us on today's program and she's Director of Programs. And Ms. Callis will be addressing Leukemia Research Foundation's free programs and services and will be providing their um, phone numbers and contact information. And it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Callis. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for that introduction. And, and thank you to Cancer Care for once again hosting this important program to keep everyone updated on AML. Um, at this moment, I'd like to provide you with just a very brief overview about our foundation and our patient and family support. 
So the Leukemia Research Foundation's mission is to cure leukemia by funding innovative research and to support patients and families. The foundation has raised over $84 million in support of its mission and has funded research grants to over 600 new investigators worldwide to help them advance their research. In the past few years alone, about half of the leukemia research we are funding has been focused on AML specifically. In addition to our investments in leukemia research, the foundation also supports patients and families by providing free programs and resources, including educational programs, much like this one that you're listening to, disease and treatment information, peer support programs, which Dr. Stein actually referenced a little bit in his talk, financial assistance resources, and a directory of other helpful organizations and resources. Our education programs include our annual New and Emerging Treatments Conference in the fall, which actually Dr. Stein um, presented on AML this past November. You can find that um, webinar on our um, webinars page on our website. And our leukemia Q&A in the winter. Um, we have one focus just on acute leukemias. We also offer various other educational programs throughout the year. I just wanted to note that in May, just a month from now, we're hosting a program on nutrition and leukemia and managing chronic um, graft-versus-host disease. You can register for those programs on our website. Over this past year, we've been adding and enhancing the leukemia disease information on our website, including the various subtypes and other informational content, including treatments, newly diagnosed, what to ask your doctor, and more. Our peer support programs include an online support community and a one-on-one -on -one mentoring program for patients and caregivers through a partnership with Immerman Angels. We also have a need-based patient grant program, which is available to eligible patients in Illinois and our neighboring communities. If you do not reside in those areas, we also have a curated directory of other financial assistance resources available. I encourage you to visit our website, leukemiarf.org, to check out these resources I mentioned, to register for educational programs, and to sign up for our email list so that you can be informed of upcoming programs and topics of interest to leukemia patients and their families. So thank you for this opportunity to share about our foundation, and I would like to turn it back over to Carolyn from Cancer Care for the Q&A. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Callis. That was really outstanding and, and a wonderful resource for people to keep in mind, um, just both in terms of the research you are funding, but also in terms of all the sort of support programs that you offer. So just a wonderful resource. Um, and I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care, and then we're going to move right on to the Q&A. Um, so um, Cancer Care is a national a nonprofit organization providing free programs and services to people living with all cancers, including AML, of course. And we, um, we offer help to people of all ages and, um, and all different relationships, such as patients, caregivers, young adults, um, older adults, um, partners. Uh, family members, caregivers, so it really covers the entire spectrum of people in terms of their situation, in terms of relationship with the patients themselves, and a lot of patient support groups as well. Um, so when usually people call in the United States, they call our HOPE line at 1-800-813-4673, and 
The person who answers the phone is an oncology social worker. There's no waiting time to be queued up to hear, to speak to somebody. They're assigned to different times and they'll pick up the phone. And usually the person has a particular request. Maybe it's help with transportation for treatment or it's help in getting some support from cancer care or an online support group. So usually the person is very specific about what they want. And then after that need is met, the social worker does go over all the other services we offer, which the person may not know, and will offer those as options for someone to consider as well. So what are those other services? So we do offer practical, financial, and co-payment assistance. And um, I think our biggest request for uh, financial assistance right now is for transportation. That's a big issue, especially for people living in rural areas who live perhaps 300 miles away from their treating cancer center and the transportation alone, the gas, the wear and tear on the car and on them is enormous. So that, that's something that's a great need. Um, we also um, offer online support groups, and again, they're for people with um, AML and with all different types of, of cancers as well. Um, we also offer uh, these workshops, and we offer uh, these about 80 of them a year, and we do offer as well um, on different types of cancers and different topics as well. So they're really, um, there's a listing of them on our website as well, www.cancercare.org. And um, and those are they are these workshops are open to the to the world to some extent as you can see by the participants on today's program people can listen to it both in the United States and internationally as well um, and we also have publications and we have a host of other services as well I will just mention another service we offer which is our patient navigation which is helping people um, who if we don't have resource navigation, if we don't have the resource that someone needs, let's say we, the person needs help with food insecurity, um, we will connect them. And we won't just give them a list of places, but we will actually virtually spend time with them to find either a, somewhere in their community or somewhere locally or nationally that provides food for them. And we won't, um, we won't stop working with them until we find the resource that they need. Um, so I hope that helps everyone to understand just the, the range of services that we offer. And now we're going to move on to um, the Q&A. So um, I'm going to ask Regina to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Regina? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time we'll take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And I'm going to have a question for Dr. Stein. Um, can you go on, I'll spell this, A-Z-A-C-Y-T-I-D-I-N-E in Venetoclax, C-E-N-E-T-O-C-L-A-X after 7 and 3 and 5 and 2 regimens with C-Y-T-A-R-B-I-N-E and D-A-U-N-O-R, UBCIN. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. So um, I think what the what the um, what the questioner is probably asking about is, in someone who's got newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia, our initial treatment strategy for a younger patient is usually to give them intensive chemotherapy, one or two rounds of intensive chemotherapy with cytarabine and donorubicin. Sounds like this person got seven plus three, which is one round of intensive chemotherapy followed by five plus two, which is a second round 
of intensive chemotherapy. In those situations where the two rounds of intensive chemotherapy have not been successful, um, we often will put patients on the combination of azacitidine and venetoclax. Um, we have many patients who've gone into remission with that strategy, um, and you know everyone's individual situation is, is somewhat different, but as a general principle, it is something that, that is done routinely in the right patients. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. And um, next question. I've read that short and long-term side effects of therapy can include heart disease and second malignancies. Can you speak to prevention measures to avoid these side effects? Um, so, uh, so, so we should talk a little bit about um, what therapies cause what problems. So it is typically the class of therapies called the anthracyclines. That's a type of chemotherapy. The most common chemotherapy in acute myeloid leukemia that we use that's an anthracycline is donorubicin, the medicine that I just mentioned, the chemotherapeutic agent I just mentioned a second ago. That, um, that chemotherapeutic agent can, when given, um, at, at, when given at higher doses, when patients have received um, a cumulative lifetime dose that exceeds a certain threshold, patients, uh, one of the potential side effects is heart failure. So what heart failure is, is that the heart muscle doesn't pump as strongly, doesn't pump as strongly the blood to, to all of your organs. That typically really only occurs um, in patients who, as I said, have a lifetime dose of an anthracycline that exceeds a certain level, and um, your doctor should be monitoring your lifetime dose level to be sure you're not exceeding that level. And patients who are below that lifetime dose level, the chances of, of heart failure is exceedingly low. Um, there are no specific interventions um, that can be taken for patients um, to really reduce their risk of of heart disease. In the pediatric population, they do use a medication that, that is thought to perhaps reduce the risk of heart failure, but they really only use that in patients who are going to get a lot of this anthracycline, and kids are a little bit different than adults. So with any DNA um, damaging agent, there, there is a small risk of a second malignancy. Um, it is really a relatively small risk. Again, there's no particular way to avoid that risk. Um, and usually when you're being prescribed you know, chemotherapy for acute myeloid leukemia, the risk of bad things happening by not getting the chemotherapy, you know, far, 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 far outweighs the smallest risk of uh, secondary cancer. The secondary cancer risk is actually a little bit higher in patients who've had a bone marrow transplant than patients who have not had a bone marrow transplant. I mean, again, if you need a bone marrow transplant, you should still go ahead and do it. But for patients who've had a bone marrow transplant, their surveillance for cancers is, for second cancers, is actually quite rigorous. Um, and that's the best way to do things, to be sure you're having colon cancer screenings, breast cancer screenings, um, thinking about prostate cancer, all the common cancers that the U.S. population gets, and being screened for those um, on the schedule that your doctor tells you to be on. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And another question for you, Dr. Stein. I've read that a large fraction of the mutations in AML are epigenetic changes. 
Can you talk about this? And also, could you describe what epigenetic means for our audience in case people don't know what that term means? Sure. So I think everyone on the, I'll, I'll do the, the second, what epigenetics is first. You know, um, the easiest way to think about it is as follows. Everyone knows what, well, maybe everyone knows what genetic changes are. So genes are the, the code your D, in your DNA that tells your cells to make certain proteins and make that cell work properly. So when people have genetic mutations, um, the cells it, with those particular genetic mutations um, might not work properly. And sometimes when you have genetic mutations, it can lead to the development of cancer. Okay. Epigenetics is, um, is a field that looks at not what the mutations are in a particular cell, in the DNA of a particular cell, but it really is interested in how the cell knows to make certain proteins and not make other proteins. So I'll give you an example of this. So in all of the cells of our body, we have the genetic code to do everything that any other cell in the body could do, right? So what I mean by that is, you know, a skin cell has the genetic information in that cell that if it were um, expressed, if it were... Um, if it were red, that that cell could suddenly do what a heart cell might do. And similarly, a heart cell has the genetic information encoded in it that if, it, if, if things went awry, it could suddenly become a skin cell. So how is it that all the cells of our body don't sort of, how is it that the cells of our body know to stay a skin cell or stay a heart cell or stay a cell in your eye? And that's where the field of epigenetics comes in. Epigenetics being the, um, the coding within a cell that tells that cell to only translate the pieces of genetic information that are required for that cell to, be, to do what it's supposed to be doing. Okay, that was sort of a long-winded explanation. So... When it comes to mutations in genes um, that lead to epigenetic changes, that is something that we do see in certain subtypes of acute myeloid leukemia. Some of our therapies that are being developed actually go after those epigenetic changes. So, for example, azacitidine, that medicine that was mentioned um, in the first question, that is a medication that... Um, that is thought to exert its benefit by changing the epigenetics of the leukemia cells, thereby keeping genes that are responsible for leukemia from being expressed and being, and being active. Uh, excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's a really... Uh... I hope that's really helpful to everyone on the call. It's a great question and a great answer. These are really wonderful questions that people are asking, I must say. Um, and um, another question. Um, I'm an older AML patient with IDH1 mutation, and it was suggested I try a less invasive method to treat my AML, such as 
I-V-O-S-I-D-E-N-I-B. However, I'm concerned that a less invasive method won't be aggressive enough. Can you speak to this? Sure. Um, so, yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. So um, patients, just to back up for a second, patients with IDH1 mutations um, have access to a treatment um, that, uh, that targets the mutant, the mutant protein, the mutant IDH1 protein. And there are a variety of different therapies approved for IDH1 mutant acute myeloid leukemia. One of them is just this IDH1 inhibitor um, called ivocytinib for newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia. One of them is the combination of azacitidine, that drug we've now talked about twice, um, uh, we've talked about twice, and ivocytinib, so the combination of those two drugs, or the combination of a medicine called venetoclax with azacitidine that we talked about two questions ago, two or three questions ago. And I guess the thing I want to, I, I would want to impart to the question, to the questioner is that something being more aggressive, whatever exactly that means, is not necessarily better. Because when you're thinking about what the best treatment for a patient is, you have to think about the anticipated side effects of that treatment as well. So, you know, if in a particular patient the, the remission rate is, let's say, 50%, but the chances of very severe side effects is 20%, um, then the 50% doesn't really matter, right? Because no one wants to have the severe side effects, especially if they're going to be sort of life-altering. Um, but sometimes, in some patients, it is, um, you know, the, the, the more intensive treatment, that is the treatment with more side effects, um, ends up being, being better because maybe the patient is a little bit younger and they're able to tolerate the side effects better. I think if there's some question about... Um, whether a patient should get aggressive treatment or not, and the doctor is saying, no, you definitely shouldn't get aggressive treatment, um, that might be the time to seek a second opinion. Having said that, if the aggressive treatment we're talking about is what is intensive chemotherapy, the kind of chemotherapy that is given in the hospital, or you're in the hospital for a month, um, I have never given that to someone over the age of 78, um, because I think it's just too... And I think almost everyone would say, or in fact, I think everyone I can think of would say that it's, it's, the side effects are just too serious, um, and there's a better chance that the patient will be harmed giving a treatment like that rather than a patient being helped. Excellent. Wonderful concepts here. This is wonderfully helpful. Thank you so much. And for Ms. Callis, um, do you have any tips to deal with the emotional stress of undergoing treatment? Oh, goodness. That's a great question. Um, we have had educational programs on coping with a diagnosis, and I know Cancer Care does a lot of this work, too, with the licensed clinical social workers that they have. Um, but, yes, I would encourage you to take a look at the webinar we've done on that on our web website, leukemiarf.org. We did an hour-long program with um, someone from Cancer Wellness Center, um, she's an LCSW who gave some really great tips on this exact topic. Um, certainly, we wouldn't be able to cover that right now, but if you could look that up on our website, great resources as well as Cancer Care has many um, great resources around this topic as well. Excellent. And yes, I would recommend strongly that people also, in addition to the uh, Leukemia Research Foundation, actually visit the Cancer Care website or contact our Hopeline 
will be, uh, by the way, um, in a couple of days after this program, you'll be receiving a SurveyMonkey evaluation, which is an evaluation of the program, but will also include a lot of resources that you can contact um, to get support and just help with um, the emotional issues that you may be struggling with. And many of us have done uh, webcasts and workshops and have online support groups and lots of things available so you're not out there alone. So please recognize that there are a lot of resources out there and we'll include them in the Survey Monkey when you get that, um, all those uh, recommendations for organizations. Um, so um, Dr. Um, uh, Stein, can you address, can you speak about proton beam radiation therapy for AML? Would you recommend it for all AML patients or is it patient dependent? Um, it's an interesting question. We typically don't give radiation for acute myeloid leukemia. Um, unless the acute myeloid, because AML is a blood-borne disease, right? So, um, you know, the leukemia cells are in your bone marrow and they're circulating in your blood and you can't really radiate someone's, all of someone's blood unless you're doing an allogeneic stem cell transplant, in which case they, they, they do that as a, as a preparation of getting the donor stem cells. Um, there are rare situations where acute myeloid leukemia cells can form, they can all sort of coalesce together and form solid masses. That's a situation called a myeloid sarcoma. In that situation, in some situations, we will consider radiating a myeloid sarcoma as part of the treatment regimen. Whether giving conventional radiation, which is electron beam radiation, is better than giving proton-based radiation, um, honestly, I'm not 100% sure. That's a, that's a great question for a radiation oncologist, um, and that's why they are there to help advise patients um, whether that is better or not better than giving the conventional electron beam radiation. And last question for you, Dr. Stein. Um, if um, someone is anemic, does it put them at a higher risk of developing AML? No. Well, uh, let, me ask, let me answer that question slightly differently. Um, someone who is anemic just because they're anemic, let's say they're iron deficient or they're missing vitamins or nutrients, um, and that's what's causing them to be anemic, they're at no higher risk of getting AML than someone in the general population. However, if the reason that someone is anemic is because they've got um, some sort of underlying bone marrow disorder, there are pre-leukemic conditions such as myelodysplastic syndrome and a disorder called myelofibrosis, that um, and other disorders like clonal hematopoiesis that, that are bone marrow disorders, those patients are at higher risk of developing acute myeloid leukemia. So it really comes down to what is the reason that the patient's anemic. Certainly if they have a pre-leukemic condition, then sort of by definition, they're at a higher risk of getting AML. But if it's sort of your run-of-the-mill anemia, like iron deficiency because you're not getting enough iron in your diet or something of, like that, um, there's no increased risk of AML. Excellent. And I'm just going to ask each of our speakers, both Dr. Um, Stein and um, Ms. Callis, just to give a quick takeaway, just a sentence or two of what you'd like people to take away from today's program. Dr. Stein? Sure. So, I mean, the most important thing to take away, as I said in my talk, is that you should be educated about your disease. You should seek out clinical trials because um, they help advance the field, and in, in almost all cases, they they um, offer something new to you as the patient. And you shouldn't be afraid to ask for help, especially when it comes to psychosocial issues.
Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Ms. Callis? Yeah, and I would say um, just kind of based off that question about emotional support, I mean, just know that you are not alone. There are many organizations out there just like ours and Cancer Care that are here trying to um, provide you with resources and things that you might need as you go through this. So you are not alone and um, come on to both of our websites and see what's out there. We also connect with other organizations that are fantastic organizations in this space. So um, just know that you're not alone. It's a tough road, but um, we're here to help. Well, I must thank you, and I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been phenomenal today. It's been an amazing call, and although we've done this program before, um, you know, it's really, um, I have to say, the questions that were being asked and the responses from our speakers have been really phenomenal, just amazing. So um, just a, a I have to say, I have to applaud all, each of you, both our participants and our speakers. Also, I just want to uh, reiterate what Ms. Callis has said, that we don't want anyone to leave this call feeling that you're alone. We want you to know that you're part of the community of support. And you do have Google Community Research Foundation to contact Cancer Care. And again, we'll be sending you a host of organizations that, um, that you can contact for support. Um, and of course, there is the healthcare team. And remember, your healthcare team consists of your hematologist, oncologist, um, your um, oncology nurse, oncology social worker, um, patient navigator, financial navigator. There's a whole bunch of people there. So any question or concern you have, you can start with your team to begin with. And also, for those of you who asked a question today or have a question you have to ask, please go back to your healthcare team with your question because you've learned things today. And when you ask the question of your healthcare team, they have access to your medical records so they can actually they know everything about you, and to some extent, they can customize the answer specifically to you. And then, so that's, that's really important as well. Um, and so I really want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.